Scuba Obsessed, the weekly podcast. We talk about all things scuba diving from cool new gear to places to dive and scuba in the news. Scuba Obsessed episode 393 is recorded live January 10th, 2019. Welcome back to Scuba Obsessed. I'm Darren Gilson, coming to you from the southwest side of the great state of Michigan, where we are finally having our winter. Joining us this week, we have Mac, the dive mentor. I'm doing pretty good. <laughs> oh, did, did I, I'm sorry. <laughs> we, we had that oh, pregnant oh. pause in there. Yeah, so, so how are you doing today? And I am doing very well. And then, you, then we also have. Uh, go ahead. Did I interrupt you? Nope. Nope. Go for it. Okay. And then we also have a a, a secret lurker holding about who will who will jump in at some point in time. So the snow uh, this this week we finally did get it. Have, uh, you, you have much up there, Mac? Nope. Uh, comes and goes. I think I shoveled a little bit just so I had my path down to the mailbox and wouldn't slip and bust my. Yeah, we we don't have a ton, but compared to nothing, we're we're kind of growing a little bit. I'd say three or four inches, which in January to say you've got three or four inches is uh, that that's not much at all. But I got to ask you, Darren, do you have any ice yet? Uh ice, ice. Uh, no, no. Uh, now I haven't driven by Singer Lake. Have you have you head that way, Mac? Nope, I have not. Yeah, so I expect Singer maybe, but in that voice there you heard was uh, Dave Toneman. So how you doing, Dave? Been busy. Work has been killing me, but I'm glad to be back. Well, it's glad to hear you again, and uh, hopefully you can, uh, along with being back, and get some uh, dives in. That would be awesome. And we'd also like to thank everybody who's in the chat room. We have Derek and Eric who've joined us tonight some of the old diehards in there Uh, so let's go ahead and jump right on into the news we have a little bit of a late start tonight it's a little bit after 10 p.m and i blame verizon so that's my call out and if anybody from verizon ever wants to know i think they suck i can sure tell them (laughs) don't hold back don't hold back Oh, so uh, this first article we have up is more oil than expected recovered from Newfoundland shipwreck. Federal officials say crews removed more oil than expected from a decade-old shipwreck off Newfoundland. Canadian Coast Guard said Thursday that 208,767 liters of oil were removed from the Manolis L last summer in Notre Dame Bay, enough to fill 1,313 oil barrels. The paper carrier sank near the Change Island in 1985, about 70 meters of water, and was dormant until April 2013 when the fuel oil leaked from cracks in the hull during a powerful storm. Ottawa awarded $50 million cleanup to Ardent Global Marine Services last spring. After years of lobbying by area residents, federal officials said they expected to recover substantially less oil, between 115,000 and 150,000 liters. 14 tanks aboard the sunken ship were pumped and flushed. In addition to the Ardent Global 
uh, contract documents from 2015 showed 1.7 million in federal money was already had been spent trying to plug oil leaks in the ship. So they spent 1.7 million. Oh, but it was 15 million to clean up. Yeah. Well, that was 55,150 gallons. Uh huh. And it makes me wonder why did it take so long for it to start to leak? Because it seems like if you went in, tap the hull from the outside, you know how to do that. You could have sucked mm-hmm. that oil out a long time ago. Oh, it's all the way you've got to do it. They were probably waiting on the permit to be approved. <laughs> yeah. There you go. They didn't have anybody to expedite the paperwork. Oh, yeah, but I mean that has to be a good sign that they brought up more than they thought. Uh, it would, to me, it would indicate that they didn't lose much. Yeah, it's got to be amazing. I like the picture too. It's a nice shot. Mm-hmm. I mean, they got good visibility wherever they're working. Yeah. Now, now, where is this one? Is this the one that was in Erie? I'm having a hard time translating. No, that's this is Newfoundland. Okay. So a little bit, a little bit farther away than Erie. So. Yeah. Yeah, and the one in Erie was benzene. Ah, that's right. That's why I'm. That's why I'm mixing them up. And then we have an article from the Enquirer out of the Philly. Uh, Ketogenic supplements, not the diet, may help scuba divers avoid seizures brought on by oxygen toxicity. Scuba diver diagnosed with epilepsy are following the ketogenic diet to help control or avoid seizures might want to try adding certain ketogenic supplements to regular meal plan instead. Researchers at the University of South Florida found that boosting the level of blood ketones by using the ketogenic supplements, not the popular diet, may provide increased resistance to seizures brought on by extreme levels of hyperbaric oxygen. The results were published this month in a journal of physiological reports. The keto diet is a very strict, low-carb, high-fat meal plan which forces the body into ketosis, a process where the body burns ketones produced by fat instead of glucose produced by carbs. The diet has helped people lose weight and has proven to improve certain health conditions, including treatment-resistant epilepsy. Exposure to high-pressure oxygen is a danger for recreational, technical, and military scuba divers who mixture of pressurized air, including nitrogen and oxygen in their tanks. Florida researchers fed rats ketogenic supplements in addition to regular high-carbohydrate rodent chow, and they exposed them to pure oxygen in a small hyperbaric environment chamber until they developed seizures as a result of oxygen toxicity. The rats were fed supplement that combined ketone ester and medium-chain triglyceride oil experienced a delay in the onset of hyperbaric oxygen juice seizures compared to rats that received other supplements. The severity of the seizures was also reduced in this group. As a scuba diver, I'm very excited about the implications of these findings. Since turning 20 years of diving, I have heard many stories about divers being exposed to high partial pressure of oxygen, and it's something that always has been uh, considered when planning a dive, said lead author uh, Silas Ari Dogostin. I'm I'm not going to be really good with the names tonight. It's a restaurant right by me, so I should be able to pronounce that. Uh, PhD research <laughs> assistant professor in the department. That's I'm just thinking of pizza. 
of uh, Psychology at USF College of Arts and Scientists. Well, previous studies have found that following the ketogenic diet may help control seizures for those with epilepsy and decrease central nervous system oxygen toxicity syndromes in divers. This study concludes that just by using the supplements, there is a protective effect against seizures. And then they go on a little bit farther. Uh, are there... Um, uh, are there divers who are more susceptible than to oxygen toxicity than others? You're about to get me onto a soapbox. <laughs> well, because when I when I, my first thing on this is like, don't go there. I mean, that's why we've got the tables and we know what it is. So plan the dive and don't get in a situation. So the money has been spent to research the fact that a 1.4 atmospheres absolute partial pressure oxygen there have been no recorded incidents of oxygen toxicity, which is why it's been widely recognized in the recreational diving world as a maximum limit for oxygen exposure. It's not complex. Analyze your gas. Know your maximum operating depth of that gas. Don't exceed a 1.4 during an active portion of a dive, or a 1.6 during deco if you're into that. I can't remember to take a multivitamin, let alone a supplement, <laughs> well, the kicker I got all out of that is they're talking about high-pressure gas. You're not really talking high-pressure gas. You're talking partial pressure like we just talked about. Yes. And the second part, if they look at this, it was not consistent, meaning the protective element, even with the animals they tried. So it's not consistent. It varies depending upon the subject. The same as oxygen toxicity to the individual depends upon mm -hmm. the circulatory system. It's age. Like, I am a lot more sensitive to that than a younger guy's going to be. Yeah, Most certainly. Yeah, you're, you're... And we've, we've have proven ways to keep yourself out of that realm, and it's not difficult. I put that on par with somebody that buys a clean-out so they can smoke weed before they drug test. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> And I, I, I kind of see it as a waste of funds to research. It's not a problem. It's, it's a solution looking for a problem. Yeah. I mean, it's nice that people are actually doing research in a dive world, but they had to have some other connection in order to get their funding, would be my guess. That, that would be interesting to think of what was the research done. Of course, I could see, like, the Navy or somebody funding something like this, because maybe they, in some advanced mixed, want to be able to push it. Maybe they feel that if they get in a different ratio that there's some other benefits, but they don't want to go that close to uh, too high a PPO. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see what, what spurred the concept on um, and how they actually wrote their grant proposals. But I just... I don't know why we have to make some things so complex when it's as simple as just know your mix and respect it. This next article is from Scuba Diver Mag. Uh, they have a question which is saying, can you scuba dive after gastric band surgery? And the question was, somebody said, I had weight loss surgery a few years ago. The procedure I had called gastric bypass. Ironically, I sold my dive gear to help pay privately for the procedure, thinking I'd never use it again, but having the surgery gave me a new lease on life, and I've been thinking about getting back in the water. 
is diving possible? Would there be any risk or limits of my depth? Am I, I'm, all I'm interested in is shallow recreational dives in warm water, nothing extreme. Hope you can give me some new uh, good news. And then the answer was, I think I can. Gastric bypass surgery has been around for nearly 60 years, so surgeons are well aware of the possible complications of procedure. The pleasant-sounding dumping syndrome is the most troublesome. Cold sweats, butterflies, bloating, and diarrhea after eating. To avoid this, small meals, which are high in protein, low in sugar, on order of the day. On the whole, results are good and weight loss sustained. A newer surgical approach is to wrap a band around the stomach, the size of which can be adjusted by injecting or removing saline through a port placed on the skin. This can be done via keyhole surgery laparoscopically and a and hence commonly called lap band. One charming complication of this procedure is uh, productive burping. Productive burping? is I think that was my band in high school. Uh, the regurgitation of swallowed food, slower eating, and more thorough mastication that's chewing can normally sort this out. Ascent from a dive can cause some acid reflux, which might be an issue with either of these procedures, but this can usually be treated with antacids and similar drugs. Air trapped is unlikely as the gut is still open at either end and more important release of expanding gases. So assuming you have none of the above problems, go dive. Yeah, I looked that up after I read this. And it's like, mm-hmm. well, it sounded academic because if you look at the pictorials and diagrams and how they did it, you should not have had any issue to begin with. And if you use a band especially. Right. Yeah, because as, as, as long as it's not a closed container, which is being pressurized. Yeah. And, and then... And then you would just think that, like with any surgical procedure, you want to get cleared by your doctor and you want to be completely healed because you don't want to be going in the water, especially where we can dive sometimes with an open wound. Absolutely. Now, even though it's not part of your stuff, I found the other articles in here pretty interesting. Okay. I mean, did you read the one on, they were talking about whales have such large amounts of body fat, you know, that's supposed to keep them warm, so how come they don't get the bends? I mean, that was pretty interesting just reading that aspect of it. Uh, what what did they say about that one? Well, they were talking about the different, I didn't realize it, but there's some animals or some whales that are basically, uh, I think they said 40% fat. It's one of the uh-huh. few whales that when it dies, it doesn't sink. Oh, okay. It's got to blubber. And they were talking about the blubber on, on that kind of whale can be six foot thick. And they were also saying that the reason they don't have this issue is he's a breath holder. He's not got a tank down there with him. So he's starting with an air that he already inhaled. Mm-hmm. They also said that the whales only require 9%, meaning the, the oxygen they have is stored in the blood muscle. Mm-hmm. Only 9% is in their lungs compared with 34% for human lungs. And that was why they don't get bent. They're diving with a single breath. A big one. They're not taking on compressed air at depth. And that's also, they said, to why extent, look at free divers, they don't get narked or bent Mm -hmm. because they're doing a breath hole. Yes. They also talked about the ribs of the whale are flexible and mobile, and they collapse inward with pressure, pressing the lungs, forcing the air into the areas where absorption does not occur, meaning the airways. So I thought that was quite interesting. 
Hmm. Yep. And the biggest one you hit on there, Mac, is it's just like a free diver. They're not yep. breathing compressed air at depth. They're not yep. taking on that increased partial pressure of nitrogen that the, the fatty tissues are going to store. They don't come anywhere close to an M value. So, Unlike sharks that eat divers and then the, the tank explodes. <laughs> Especially if you shoot it with a thirty caliber rifle. Yeah. From the back of yeah. your boat. Yeah, they call that the Roy Schneider effect. <laughs> and then the next article we have is, uh, I think it's from Yahoo. I don't know if they actually do any of their own news or it's some, from someplace else, but they're talking about giant barrel sponges are the longest living animals on the planet. They said that despite the fact they grow, uh, oh, I'm sorry, they, they said the giant barrel sponges are actually animals despite the fact they grow fixed to the reef or ocean bottom, giving us the, pres- the impression that they're plants. They are impressive in their size and their presence in the underwater world, but the fact about them and their importance of health and reef and ocean is truly surprising. Scientists estimate their lifespan at well over 2,000 years of age. The oldest known living creature was a barrel sponge in a decade and a half, estimated age of 2,300 years. compared. Galapagos turtles, approximately 200 to 250 years of age, or blue whales at approximately 200 years of age. They uh, easily exceed the lifespan of any known animal on the planet by many times. Even the giant redwood trees of British Columbia and the western United States have been recorded to only be 2,000 years. So that's interesting. Did you get to the part where it talked about that each of its cells can do whatever any other cell does. I, I didn't get to that part, but it, it kind of, when you look at them, you almost think that way. That's, I mean, that's almost, I know they're a complex uh, organism, but you, they almost seem like algae sometimes. Yeah, they were saying that if you take that and pulverize it in a blender, it can still regrow because each cell can do anything any of the other cells. Hmm. And they were saying <laughs> that, that is the science you're looking at for replication, so that if your body had the same kind of cell, mm-hmm. it could re- reproduce or replicate your lung, heart, liver, whatever that you needed. And that's why they're looking at it from that same perspective. How can they make our cells, with yeah. the right incentive, do something similar? But I would have never guessed they were animals as opposed to not being animals. Yeah, I hadn't. Yeah, because I they because I think they reproduce sponges by uh, like a spawning, kind of similar to coral. And then we've got the uh, something out of the Maritime Journal saying 3D virtual tours uh, enable shipwreck exploration. MSDS Marine has created a virtual trail of the wreck of the Dutch Dutch East India Man ship lost. 279 years ago, today, the 10th of January, 1740, on the Goodwin Sands off Kent in the UK. Working with Artes Media and Cyan Sub, the trail of the Ruswitch was created using archival evidence, geophysical surveys, underwater photos and footage, and computer-generated imagery. New archaeological finds have been made available in 3D, and users can explore the model while model the wreck showing where they were found. Jane, 
goodness, I'm I'm reading everything backwards tonight. Allison James at MSDS Marine said access for the public to protected wreck such as the Roos Witch. It's R O O S W A W I J K is something that really important as they are shared assets for everyone to enjoy, not just the archaeological community, virtual access is such on this trail incredibly important allows people to discover the site themselves respective of their ability or physical access to the site. In 2017 and 2018, the Cultural Heritage Agency of the Netherlands, Historic England, MSDS Marine undertook a high-profile excavation of the protected wreck site owned by the Dutch government and managed by Historic England. The tour takes viewers through the archaeological process from discovery to post-excavation revealing archaeological conservators and and specialists have provided video interviews talking about their work on materials from the site and the secrets they can reveal once in the laboratory. When they say protected, does, does this mean you can't dive on it? In that particular instance, absolutely. Uh, okay. Yeah. I sent another link. Or mm-hmm. You might've seen it already. This one's a little different. I, I sort of got interested in that. So I went roaming around. And if you look at the pictures from this particular site, you know, you're talking one site said 20 meters, one said 25 meters. I think I'd be a little more definitive if I were printing out what it really is. But look at some of the pictures, or did you look at any of them? I'm, I'm just starting to load them now. You, you've heard what I call a rubble wreck? Yes. And how much benefit yeah, is that, a rubble wreck? Not a lot. And that's yeah, what I, is... I look at this, and they're, they're, I look at the money they're spending, and I know it's an old wreck. But again, my, my bottom line always comes out, is the return on the investment worth this effort? Yeah, uh, th- this is certainly a rubble wreck. The, well, the Havana is in better shape. <laughs> Just about. What that caused me to do, though, because you know how I sort of get off on a tangent sometimes. Well, a lot of times. Uh-huh. Um, I, I had to go back and look at something, and I sent Dave this already. I looked at two aspects from a uh, perspective of a archaeologist. Uh, one of it, uh, one from Texas, wrote a very um, vocal and not friendly comment on divers, people who use metal detectors, <clears throat> and how it basically is you know, we're just tearing up society by going out, finding wrecks, moving things off of wrecks. And it's, it's a horrible thing that we do, environment. And then I was looking around a little bit more, and I found a very interesting article that I am going to go back and reread. It's called Impact Philanthropy. It's Impact on Archaeology. And this is something that people are going to have to now uh, work with. Uh, let me find my note because I made some little key points here, or he made some key points that I thought were really, really good. They talked about right now, the USA, for example, charitable giving is the core of American system for funding archaeology. It said uh, the, prerog- uh, the perspectives and priorities are those of who donate the money, meaning they will help determine in the long run what's going to do who's going to do it, and how they're going to do it. And that's the way it's been forever and ever. 
Well, they're finding out now that most of the big guys who used to give their money out are dying away. So it's a little harder to get the money. And the focus they talked about now is people in tech companies. And the bottom line that the new people are looking at is how is what you're doing making a difference? They said we spent $390 billion of that amount, 5% went to the social scientists like archaeology. Not a lot because they want something to be done with their money. So it said the new focus has produced philanthropic buzzwords, social impact, and they're increasingly want their money to lead to demonstrable changes in the lives of individuals or in society as a whole. They're asking donors who are getting the money to demonstrate the difference their programs are making. Basically, they want to see what are they getting for their money, meaning what's the return on the investment. It's a define the impact, provide metrics, demonstrate success, demonstrate tangible, positive impact on the surrounding residential community. Funders will be more demanding about measured results increasingly. Those results will need to have a social dimension, not simply one related to the recipient's scholarly or cultural mission. That, I thought, was a big mouthful right there. Well, and then that explains this whole thing right there. Because this is a measurable way that they can show in their grant proposals what they've reached. They know how many people went to the website to check it out. here Here at the end, they say, stay up to date with the latest discoveries. Use the hashtag Ruswich1740. So you know that somebody's keeping track of all those numbers, and then they'll, they'll use it to justify additional money on this or, an, or another. Yep. The, the article was really good because they talked about, we can see the differences from two standpoints. First, uh, a few things that won't work going forward. Failure to report the results and ba- impact of your project in some credible fashion while not pass muster with funders, emphasizing outputs rather than impact. For example, by counting the number of people involved in a program is simply passe. You won't get a pass with the argument that this sort of information can't be collected for archaeology. Funders increasingly simply will not fund activities that can't demonstrate some social value added. And forget about uh, what I call smiley face project evaluations that feature feel-good interviews with participants that are unstructured, self-reported, and grounded in emotion rather than defined theories or proven tools. That's mm. going to be interesting. Yeah. So basically, they're asking, you're asking for accountability. That's Yes. Wow. So the whole article was impact, philanthropy, its impact on archaeology. Very, very good. January 2018. And it was at the uh, 119th annual meeting of the Archaeological Institute of America in Boston. Mm. Go ahead, Dave. Gonna say something? No, I'm just I'm just amazed. You know, basically, what you're saying is people are wanting to see accountability for projects that they're funding. That's <laughs> wow. Well, accountability and how does it work for the people? What are the people getting out of it? Not just the scholarly information that you get. There's another type. It's called, uh, are you, uh, there's two types of archaeologists. One that believes that nothing should ever be sold. It should be covered, stored, 
studied, and the other one is you get it, you look at it, see what you can use it for, and if you can make money off of it, you do to further your investigations. Well, and don't forget, you also have a third type, kind of like Lee Spence. If you ever get the chance to visit his house and see his yes. office. Yeah, Dr. Spence is, is really some interesting person. That's a great way to phrase that. Okay, Darren, you can jump in. Now. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll head on to the next one, which is restoring a shipwreck. And uh, this one was from uh, ricochet.com. It says, so you have a home restoration project. And you think you have troubles, consider the plight of marine archaeologists discovered historically significant wreck and has to decide whether or how to restore it. And which I won't all of it, but they, they break it down into all the the steps uh that are involved. So if you if you it's I I like it for the photos if you go through it. So they you know, they have a figure it shows the uh remote sensing survey. And then they show the portions of the the vessel that are most likely to be preserved and most likely not to be preserved. And we can vouch for those not to be preserved parts. And then they talk about uh, shipwreck preservation. And then they show that, uh, where is that in that coffer dam? That's the one in the Texas, isn't it? Yes. Where they, where they built that dam all the way around the vessel. It was, yeah, that was uh, the, uh, the LaSalle. LaSalle. LaSalle's yeah. boat. And and you you want to talk about return on investment or cost? I mean, how much did that have to to run? Drive all these piles in? Why would you restore it? Why not just document it in its current condition and take apart whatever anthropological information you can from what you can observe and move on? Yeah, because they show a picture in there where of that of the LaSalle. So I I find it hard to believe that they were able to get a coffer dam to hold back the water for how deep is it? twelve meters, twelve feet, three three point seven meters. I guess yeah, that's not far meters. at all. You can do a coffer dam no. for that easy. The yeah. coffer dam they built was basically just sheet piling. Yeah, they just drove sheet piling around it, two layers if I remember correctly, and they poured a berm in between the two to reinforce it, and then they pumped it out. Yeah, once you get the berm in there, then that's your, that slows the water penetration. Uh, yeah, you have an immersion tank. The water had to be removed from the wood. Uh, this is done by removing the now plasticized wood from the tank and freeze-drying it. Freeze-dry chambers are the size of a cargo container. Despite the size of the chamber, freeze-driving the wood took another two years. And, and still, from all of that effort and all of that money, what does that buy you? In the scheme of things. An exhibit? For how long? And not as long as it was in the water. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, even if you keep it on exhibit for 10 years, at some point, you know, everybody's been there and they've seen it. And it'll just go in the basement somewhere. Who were we okay. talking to the other day? We were talking about, for example, the silver sides. Yes. They want to get rid of it? I hadn't heard of the... The silver sides they want to get rid of now? Yes. We were also talking about that the other night. If you're... Yeah, well, I yeah we were talking about Muskegon and the uh, Milwaukee Clipper, but the silver sides, I hadn't realized that they were talking about getting rid of that. Right, because uh, it's not, people aren't coming out and look at it too much. It's considered an eyesore now. I mean, 
we're talking a short term of history between World War II and now. Mm-hmm. Now, if you were to put it out like the C-97, there's a big call for, let's do something with that one. <laughs> well, here you got one still on the surface, usable. If somebody had the funds, why not take it out of the water, mothball it, dry it out? Then you got it for another 50, yeah. 80 years. Yeah. Yeah. My my dad and I both uh, helped do some uh, restoration and preservation on the. Yeah. You guys were working on that 20-something years ago when he worked at Cook. Yeah. Yeah, we, we we would head up there and, you know, you do regular maintenance, cleaning, and that's functioning. Back At least back then, yeah. uh, they were starting the diesels several times a year. But you know what the difference is, is the veterans of, are dead. Yes, and they're, so soon we forget. Yeah, and because uh, when, when we were going up there, they would have a, uh, a veterans day, and every once in a while, you would actually get somebody who had served on the silver sides up there and they would tell a story about it. It's uh, awkward between preservation and restoration. Seems like most people wanted to go to hell in a handbasket and then try to restore it. If it's that important to restore, maybe you should have preserved it in the first place. Yeah. Well, I would be in favor of making like a submarine museum, you know, just, you know, take it to the the museum of science and industry because that's where it was originally. The silver sides was at the Navy pier for years. Uh, it was, uh, it, it, it sat there at it, literally at Navy pier. And, uh, there were some, uh, organizations, uh, I'm not sure if it was not the reserve, but there, there was some Naval based organizations that were on it. And then they would have, you know, Cub Scout troops and everybody come on it in a while. And then when they wanted to, uh, they, the, in the early days of starting to redo Navy pier, that's what they decided. It was an eyesore. So then uh, that's when it got moved over to Muskegon. They must have uh, bid on it and said they would have a, a spot for it, a museum. And then they, they towed it over. But, uh, last, I mean, last I knew it was still in sound condition. It, it's not uh, a working submarine because they've cut it up for the purpose of uh, providing access to people. And then part of the decommissioning after the war is that they put plates on just about any any opening through the pressure hull. Uh, yeah, that's 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 sad. Yeah, and, and so why why is that not worth studying? Well, the problem is, is you have newer generations that if they can't sit on their couch on their ass and look at it online, they don't want to go look at it. <laughs> that's true, but uh, that's what a lot of these. Uh, you know, it's like every port. At one point, had one or two vessels that they they did and preserved. I mean, we had the Kewatin and and Saugatuck. You've got uh, you know the Silver Sides Milky Clipper in uh, Muskegon, and then you've got uh, you know vessels in South Haven. I don't know if Holland got anything. I'm not familiar if they've got anything up there. But it comes back to what you just said. It's the people that it meant something to because they served on it and. The kids of that generation, that's me. When we go, the other people don't care because they got their own wars. Yeah. Well, they had the, uh, well, uh, what was it in uh, Philadelphia? Was it the Olympic? Well, you've got. The only floating vessel from the Spanish-American War? Well, you got the Ironsides in Baltimore. And they maintained that sucker. That's still in the Navy is my understanding. Have you ever been on the Ironsides in Baltimore? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, I've been there. Wonderful, that, that, wonderful item. 
instead of yeah. putting it in a museum that's functional. Yeah, I, I'm a I'm a fan of of keeping them functional. But and it, the reason they can do that is because that's not just a generational; that's historical, and people have really drawn to that. You can't yeah. get that kind of enthusiasm anymore. No, it, it's hard. Um, and I think a lot of it, a lot of it goes back to, and I'm not going to expand this into some political thing, but what's being taught in schools and how history is being pushed to the side quite a bit, almost like the arts. <laughs> and there's just the interest isn't there as much as it used to be, unfortunately. Well, it, it goes, it kind of goes back to the measurement, you know, whatever school is measuring and history tends not to be as important. And it's always something that can be revised. Mm-hmm. You can condense it down, distill it for whatever you want your current political agenda to be, and that's what we get. Well, look, I, most of my learning of history happened after school, not through school. But there was something that was set to your mind that got you interested in history. Well, uh, history is just a story. I mean, you, you go to the movies and you watch the movies. Uh, you know, the, well, they said the uh, news is just the history you don't know. And, uh, it can be a while, a while ago. Mackie, you okay? Yeah, so why did you, did I drop my headset again? Yeah, sounds like you're quick, rolling around the floor. I had to make a quick trip real quick because I wanted to share something that I thought was Really, really wild. Okay. Go ahead and continue until I find it in the paper today. Okay. I can't remember. I was I was ranting, but uh... it, it it all goes back to there's only so much money available for things, and everybody wants to put a lot of money into things that you know. Look at the the abomination you have on the uh, the South Pier in St. Joe. I mean, uh, the artwork. No. <laughs> You mean the collection of phallic symbols that we we have? Yeah. How much how much money was wasted on that instead of the history of the port? Oh, uh, quite a bit. Yeah. They. Uh, yeah. They, yeah. But but again, it's somebody donated that. I mean, all that money was donated. There's, you know, some of it probably the the concrete it was on, and then some improvements of the park, but. Most of that was provided by uh, private funders. I bet if you if you dig, and in, this so. goes back in a circle to what Mac was on a rant before the before the podcast started, and then you know he, he started a little bit there, and people and how they're spending their money philanthropically, and what mm-hmm. in God's name would make you want to pay for that twisted piece of a radio tower that they've got on the pier <laughs> versus preserving history yeah but evidently enough people were wanting to and willing to that they they funded yeah well when you see the art that's the size of those pieces that are along the river that wasn't you know it's not like you're an an artist and you're just doing a painting or something those are all commissioned you know you you don't invest Mm -hmm thousands of dollars in raw materials to make something. Somebody commissioned that. And yes. then sometimes I look at that and I think that's all you came up with. I mean, they have one where it's like 
steel wire like made into a mesh and a bunch of rocks stuck into it. I mean, there, there are people who've done break walls who are thinking, I built that every day and now you paint it, you paint it and put it on display. Well, not too far from me, we have a, a field that is about two acres. Uh, the artist's name is Malcolm Crotty. I'm not even going to get on that road of concrete ears of corn that are eight feet tall. <coughs> there are probably, I don't know, 50 of these that were cast mm-hmm. and placed in this field. I don't recall how much money they said that it cost to put that into place, but why? Different strokes for different. Yeah. Well, very true. You can edit that out. <laughs> I, yeah, edit it out. Like I, like I edit everything out. <laughs> well, now that we're still in the news, we have a uh, video of the week, which is a bizarre hogfish puts on a close-up show for scuba divers. And this one was out of the Cayman Islands. Um, and and I won't read the, read the article again. We're running a little bit behind on time. But they uh, it was just a, just a nice little video to go ahead and watch. And then we have some potentially cool scuba gear. Uh, this one, we have the Consumer Electronics Show is currently going on. And uh, even scuba diving equipment was there. SIBO offers superior underwater scooter. And I had to kill the images as they were loading. Otherwise, it would completely kill my internet. But it said uh, the Chinese startup Subblue Tech successfully crowdfunded its White Shark MIX underwater scooter. Now the company is back with a faster, longer-running SIBO. Uh, currently being showcased at CES 2019, the SIBO pulls swimmers, snorkelers, and scuba divers along the water choice at three speeds. Top speed is six feet per second and can reportedly run for 45 minutes. Is this the one that we had covered before? I don't know. It looks really nice. I'm looking at the pictorials. I know it's got like a turbo speed. It's got a diagnostic here on the battery strength that I can just look at. Watch my mm-hmm. battery go down. Yeah, I, I, for some reason, I have a feeling that we covered this a few weeks ago, but I can't tell if it's the same one or another one. I can't either. Yeah, like you, like a TV, you just change a model number, and it's a whole new TV. But well, the I like SW2 it. Two um, looks like a paddleboard for kids that has the the bottom propulsion system on that. That's mm-hmm. what this leads into underwater scootering. Yeah. So I will say, like we were talking about on one of these, the, the drag of it was really reduced, but we're really trying to figure out how they m- get the batteries to give you enough strength for durations of a half hour to 45 minutes at the speeds yeah, they're off. Yeah, because there was one of them where they had to make a custom battery pack, and they talked about all the engineering they did to fit it in. And and it seems like a lot of them are going to the lithium hydroxide. Mm-hmm. Uh, batteries for that, not the normal ones that we normally see. Yeah, I have not a clue on. what the replacement batteries would. Yeah, yeah, these these might be disposable. When the battery dies, you just throw them away. But it didn't have a cost on it, did it? It said the SIBO is priced at uh, one thousand one hundred ninety nine dollars, and SWE was four ninety nine. Oh. So it should be available within the first quarter of this year. And you can pre-order below. But still ah. cool. I'd take one. They they can send one to us, and we would try it out. We keep saying that. Nobody sends us stuff. 
I was just looking. The top speed is six feet per second. Can run up to 45 minutes on one charge. It has a 158-watt-hour battery pack. And it said, by contrast, the MIX has a single speed of five feet a second and a 30-minute battery life that's down from one hour that was claimed when it was on Indigo. Uh, we talked about single-hand control system, the ability to adjust its buoyancy by adding or removing weights, positively buoyant by default, as an OLED screen that displays data, speed, battery life, also has compatible GoPro camera mounts, and it says it weighs 9.9 pounds, and maximum depth is 40 meters. That's pretty. That's pretty cool. Nine pounds. That is neat. Yeah, but how would that work with any kind of currents or anything, being so light? That's what's interesting. Well, it would, it would depend on the the thrust. I mean, if you got enough thrust to overcome the current, then you're fine. Well, and drag, streamline your body. You got yeah. more speed and time. Yeah, but some of these are getting to be really, really interesting. And the prices are coming down more and more. Well, I think you're getting a lot of competition. And these Chinese startups, they're they're not that bad. No. No. Well, and, uh, you know, because over there, it seems like you have a lot of these large conglomerates who are running these giant factories. But yep. uh, with, with enough time, they're going to they're going to learn what entrepreneurs over here are doing. I have friends who work in the uh, manufacturing industry and they produce stuff in China. And they said one of the challenges they have with working with their Chinese suppliers is that their mindset isn't the innovative refinement. Uh, they're at that mode of uh, uh, manufacturing where it's give me the specs, let me produce it. I produce it as quick and cheap as possible. They haven't gotten to that innovation design phase, but you're seeing these startups are starting to move into some of the territory that we've, that we've excelled at in the past. So uh, it won't be long now, you know, in five, 10 years, it'll look completely different. I cannot tell you how often I get emails to the dive club from China wanting to either sell, let us be a distributor for their products, or I won't Uh say free stuff, but, and then they send you a catalog or let you look at their catalog. And it's like, whatever you want, they'll give you. And right. the prices they're talking about, if I were going to do it and sell on my own, out on my truck, I could make some freaking money out of that. What I couldn't oh, do yeah. is service what I sell, and I don't know about the lifetime, the warranties. Yeah, but sometimes, if you're looking for a disposable something, that's the way to go. But I want to know, yeah. who's going to be the first one to dive the uh, rebreather you can get on Alibaba? <laughs> well, now, thinking about that, if you go through and look at the parts and you compare it with one and you look at the, you know, the ABS plastic, is it the same thickness, shape? And you, you know, you can do a lot of configuration comparison, don't you think? The the thing I'd be concerned about, of course, is if you're using O2 sensors or whatever, you're going to get quality. You're going to buy those anyway. I don't know about the electronic package. but where do you get them anyway? Who's making the electronics for the rebreathers? Oh, yes, but you've got uh, another company who's in, enforcing the standards, and and yeah, yeah. We I, we could all have a podcast just on uh, on horror stories of, of of outsourcing. 
Well, that does it for Scuba in the News. We'll go ahead and close it up. If you're enjoying the show, you can follow us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Scuba Obsessed. We're on Twitter at Scuba Obsessed. If you're enjoying the show and you would like to uh, donate, uh, help keep us going. We just renewed for another year. So this is our 10th season. You can go to scubaobsessed.com, click on over to Patreon link and $3 or more get you early access to show notes. Uh, so we certainly appreciate it. If you can't, then go ahead and leave us a five-star review on one of the platforms. Uh, one of these nights, I'm going to have to read some of the reviews we've had in the last year. We haven't kept up on that. So we'll have to do that sometime. Uh, Mac, do you have a, a safety article this week? I'm looking for it. It's one of those I have it. Now, where did I put it? Coming up on it. It's going to be here in a second. Okay. Yes, I do have one. I have to okay. blow it up so I can read the darn thing. So I can... My old eyesight's getting bad. Okay. Actually, I also put this in the uh, club newsletter for this, this month. But that's um, Diver's Corner Lessons for Life. And it says, how to deal with a panicking scuba diver underwater and on the surface. It talks about since panic con uh, contributes up to 20% of diver depth, it's important to recognize the signs in others. It may save a life, including your own. Uh, the most dangerous situation for a diver isn't schooling sharks. The bend's running out of air. It's panic. Again, 20% of the deaths are caused by panic. Someone in the grip of a panic attack doesn't think rashly. They can bolt to the surface, discard their regulators, or harm other divers. One of the most important skills to have, usually to learn through rescue diver and dive master courses, is how to safely deal with these situations. For an idea of what it takes, here are five tips for helping panic divers. Learn Number one is learn to recognize panic. It's best to defuse anxiety before it becomes full-blown attack. Divers on the verge of panic often display predictable signs, including wide and unseeing eyes, meaning their eyes are open very wide in fear, but they don't recognize your hand signals or attempt to help. Pre-dive, pay special attention to those who seem agitated about minor details of the dive plan, fixated on their equipment, which are common ways of compensating for feelings of unease. Number two, make a cautious approach. When you recognize panic divers, approach them carefully but confidently with your arm outstretched, your palm up in a stop signal until they recognize you're there to help, and they may, may acknowledge you in your hand signals. Stay at arm's length, however, because they may harm you in a struggle. Number three, use eye contact and deep breaths. Hand on the shoulder, direct eye contact is one of the most effective ways to calm a panic diver. Once the person is responsive, signal him or her to look you in the eye, hold the person by the upper arm of BC strap, encourage them to take slow, deep breath while maintaining eye contact. Panic divers often hyperventilate. A few deep breaths can bring them around in seconds. Number four, take charge. A panic diver on the surface who is non-responsive, safest approach is to place a flotation device like a inflated BC or life ring between you and the victim. If underwater, swim behind the diver, hold him or her firmly by the tank valve, make sure the regulator is in place, make a slow ascent, inflating his or your BC until you reach the surface. If needed, continue holding the tank valve as you both move towards the boat. 
Number five, know when to back away. Never sacrifice your own safety for a panic diver. That can cause you to be another potential victim. Proper rescue techniques are designed to help you help other divers while minimizing your own risk. However, if the diver is far larger and actively fights you, it probably is not possible for you to get him or her safely without endangering yourself. In this case, your best option is to get back, get yourself. Key item is don't get yourself drowned trying to help somebody when they'll need both of you drowning. Uh, when we took rescue diver and other courses like that, I swear we didn't finish. We finished it on Friday, went diving Saturday, and it's like damned if some of the items I just talked about were not recognizable. I'm watching this guy suit up on the back deck, agitated as all heck, you know, and you're watching him, but he, he got everything together. When he jumped in the water, his eyes got big as the freaking mask, and you knew immediately, get the guy out of the water, which we did. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dave, you probably, you've ran into some of that. Oh, yeah. Need to add into that. Yeah, and, you know, one of the biggest things is that the training you receive through a program like, like Rescue helps you recognize things and stop the problem early, break the chain. But one of the key points that you pointed out there, Mac, is it doesn't do any good for two people to get damaged. If you can't safely get behind somebody and get them under control or just sometimes just a look in the eye or a hand and, you know, thumb up, hey, let's go up together, and then you help them control their ascent because anybody that's on the edge of panic is going to, like, try to bolt. You know, just learning how to recognize and understanding what are the signs of somebody who's starting into panic. And the best way to to avoid it is if divers dive more and they become more familiar, more comfortable, it reduces the panic anyway. And diving and, within your personal limits. Right. And diving shallow when you're starting out with new people, you don't need to go down the 60 freaking feet to have fun. You get oh, down that 10 or 15, get comfortable. And I've dove enough with new people to that hand on the shoulder, hold their hand, makes one hell of a difference. Because yeah. you, can, you can get a clue from how they're holding your hand and how they're looking at you, what their state of comfort is. And if they're obviously uncomfortable, why on God's earth, you know, God's green earth, would you continue with the dive when they're already uncomfortable and you know it? Nothing gets better when you're underwater. There you go. And the only way to resolve it is a safe ascent at a safe speed and get out of the water. Yeah. And also remembering when you do see somebody getting geared up on the boat, and if it's somebody that's normally outgoing and they're kind of in a shell or if they're normally in a shell and all of a sudden they start act outgoing it maybe remind them any diver at any time can call a dive for any reason you don't have to do it absolutely and and anybody who would egg somebody on need to kick in the butt you know i think in our club and uh, darren how about it have we that's our philosophy Anyone can call the dive anytime for any reason. It's always, yep. always, always okay to say, ain't going to go. Yep. And, uh, and I, I remember a case had... in point. We were up yep. at um, the flat, not the flat, uh, darn it, Superman Run, uh, St. Clair. 
everybody's, you know, we got up there. We're going to do a couple of dives. One of our divers dressed up, getting ready to hop off into the, said, nope, I'm not going to just, there's something not right. He didn't dive. He didn't dive that whole weekend. He had a heart attack three days later. Uh-huh. Now, what if somebody had said, come on, Wizzy, we've been up here. We drove six hours, get into the water. You know, wouldn't you have felt real bad when he had the freaking heart attack on you? Yeah. Well, and then we, uh, we you've got that. the 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 condition. I'm, I'm trying to remember what it was where you, you start getting fluid in the lungs. Uh, I mean, the only way I you did. know that's. Yeah, the only way you know that's happening is you just don't feel right. Yep. And and we've had divers, very experienced, very technically trained divers who have not dove and then have, I don't know if it's that was the, the technical metal, medical uh, situation, but they, they went to the doctor the following week and they did have something going on. Yeah. You, I never make fun of any. Same thing if I'm going to go fly, you don't want to go flying, great. Or you're flying, I need to go down, you go down. You don't press it. I've had no problem canceling dives. Yeah. I spent I spent a weekend on the Cooper River on Tom's boat because it just wasn't it wasn't right. Mm-hmm. And you know, whatever whatever we're going down there to look at, it's not going anywhere. And if it does, yeah, so what? Yeah, and that that's a hard thing to do is to get you know it's like in flying they call it get homeitis. You know what? The weather sucks. Well, I, I think I can make As soon as you start saying, I think I can, or I think I got enough gas, or, yeah. uh, you know, I'm only going to be in the water 10 minutes. The current doesn't look that fast. You really might want to step back. Yeah. And, yeah. and you know, Mac, you really hit it there because panic is one of the biggest problems. And panic can typically be stopped through training, education, diving within your limits, slowly expanding your bounds. Don't. Don't be in a hurry to go see the Andrea Doria. Don't be in a hurry to go dive 200 feet in the Great Lakes. Don't be in a hurry to get under the ice. Build and develop as a diver and build your skill set, your situational awareness, and your abilities in the water. And at the same time, we have to, as divers, learn to recognize those problems that could pop up with other people. And that's part of our own personal situational awareness. I I know my own part or when I first started diving, my big issue was always afraid I was going to run out of air. And, or the second one, I was going to be on a wreck at 60, 70 feet. And, you know, around here 30 years ago, you didn't have visibility worth the darn. Mm-hmm. Right. I didn't really want to make a free ascent. I always carried a hundred foot line that I could hook to anything on the bottom and I could have a controlled exit back up to the surface. And I always knew which way was down and which way was up. One of the biggest problems. One of the biggest problems I've seen with newer divers is they're so afraid of being the one that's going to limit somebody else's dive time yeah. because of they go through a lot more gas yeah. and they're willing to push it, it, you know, to where they don't have enough breathing gas to have that reserve once they've gotten to the surface and they push it and then they start to worry, am I going too long? Am I getting too close? But I don't want to cut this guy's dive short. You know, we we don't dive until everybody's out of breathing gas. When the first one hits it, we go up, and that's well, that's the way it works. Well, and you know what? You'll get better. Get well, over it. The key item there you just talked about, we've been talking about this for a couple of sessions, both in the club at our meetings, is you should plan the dive 
the level of the lowest experienced person, period. Yes. Always. And not everybody should go on every dive. And, and we don't always do that because even in one of the items I have here, one of the comments I have here, it's a reminder. And my comment is, when is the last time you thought about how to respond to item one? To a diver not returning to the surface's plan. You're on your boat. Everybody planned this. What are you going to do if somebody didn't come back? Number two, have you ever wondered where the rebrider divers are? Everybody is open circuit. You've got two that aren't. They don't have mm-hmm. dive flag. They're not in the river. Where are they at? What would you do if you couldn't find them? And what do you do? A diver just surfaced. He mentions he doesn't feel real good. What do you do? Have you thought about things like that? So have you considered how to respond? And if you hadn't thought about it, why not? Part of that's like you're saying. It's pre-planning. What do you intend to do? What are your expectations? And if something happens, what's my alternate? Mm-hmm. Really trying to do that, especially when we're doing boat dives. Never a bad thing. And that, and all that stuff is, you know, the the rescue diver program, which you've mentioned several times. You know, every agency has one, and they're all pretty much the same. They're not about how to so much rescue someone. The key meat of the program is how to recognize problems and identify things that may be a problem. And how do we implement risk management controls to stop problems before they become a problem? Don't get me wrong. There's also parts about how to react to problems. But the biggest gist of it is how to plan for problems and how to plan to prevent problems. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, all all good points. And hopefully everybody takes some time and thinks about it. You know, this is, it's not something that diving's a, a destination and you've got it all figured out. It's a journey and you have to, to figure it. And we're all students constantly. And it's hard, you know, you pay big money to go on a trip, or cruise, a yes. live aboard. You, 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 you feel obligated to do it oh, even yeah. though you really know you shouldn't. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can remember the early days when I'm renting most of my gear. And you're you're thinking I got you know I got to get both dives in you you got to get your value out of out of the money. Yeah, I, I can't take this tank back with five hundred left in it. <laughs> yeah, I <laughs> paid for that damn error. Yeah, I, I'm I'm gonna drop in here at the boat ramp and finish this tank off. Yeah, I've uh, I, I I can remember those days. And and a lot of that is you know we have to remember as more experienced divers when we have newer divers coming into it to take that into account. And when we invite them along or they show up, we have to make sure that we're tailoring our plan to work with them. Or sometimes it's, it's kind of hard to say sometimes, but tell somebody, yeah, maybe this isn't the dive for you to be on yet. You can get there, but maybe not yet. And sometimes, sometimes we have to look back and say, you know, maybe this isn't the dive I should be on. I can get there, but not yet. Yeah. And in the end, funerals cost so damn much. You, you got to take that into consideration. The cost of your rental gear versus the cost of a funeral, it's not even a debate. Yep. Well, do we have anybody getting any dives in 
recently. I, I, I remember seeing something on Facebook. Uh, did we have a group that got up to Lake 16 recently? Yes, we did, actually. Uh, I know we had Bob. Well, we actually had two dives out. Remember they went on the uh, Diamond Lake and dove the wreck of the South Bend? Oh, they did the South Bend. Excellent. Yes. I was in two inches of ice. They used oh. the uh, inflatables to break the ice on the way out. Okay. Did you see the pictures? No, I I, I missed all of that. I. Oh, no. they're on the club. They're on the club site. Okay. Uh, they had at least. I'm looking at the video right now. There's at least two boats that I can see. One's the inflatable. One's the hard deck. Um, let's see what they got to say about that. Dive so, um, report. We had uh, five divers, two boats on Diamond Lake. Approach the island from the south. We encountered ice about two inches thick. Uh, all the warm days made the ice very weak, so we could uh, break it as we moved with the bow of the boat. Uh, we got to the dive site, cut a path north of the island, drove in widening circles to make sure all the ice was broken up so somebody could make an emergency scent, meaning conscious of that issue. Yes. Uh, they went down, did their dive. Everybody went down. Everybody came back. Uh, they talked about how many people had leaks. Some people's P-valve bolt, yeah, P-valve bolt was loose. Therefore, they got a little bit down their leg. <laughs> In other and a places. few other places. <laughs> so they did that one. Uh, then we went out, oh, what, a week before New Year's, and at a cold water, check your equipment dive out if you're going to go into New Year's dive. Uh, we did that at uh, Pawpaw Lake. And water was very nice, maybe 36 or 7 degrees, no ice, which was good considering all the sister lakes had ice. Uh, I think we had four or five divers on that one, recovered some nice little items, actually found a turtle or two. So we had a nice dive on that one. Uh, the New Year's dive, we had four people in the water on that one. And the following day, Bob and company was up at um, the quarry. Gilboa. Uh, Gilboa, they did yeah. that on New Year's Day. And then uh, last week, Bob and them went out, and Ted and a bunch of the guys went out to Lake 16 again. And they were really comfortable. They had ice out there. They broke it again. Uh, smaller ice elements, uh, eighth inch, quarter inch. Uh, once they got away from the, the docking area, it was fine. But they said you got to be extra careful in the ice swimming because that thin ice will cut through the uh, thin parts of your dry suit. Yes, you do not want to be patching a dry suit because you sliced it on ice. Yes. Or, uh, or, and they got another one planned for this week, as I recollect. Excellent. Well, that's a good sign. Well, you got a dry suit. There's no reason not to die. Well, I, I and you don't got to go down and spend an hour. You know, a 20-minute dive is a 20-minute dive. No, it's it's about keeping your skills fresh, making sure your gear works, uh, having the opportunity to see some of the superior visibility that you'll get with doing some cold weather and ice diving. Well, we had a new gentleman uh, showed up at the New Year's ice dive, wetsuited it. Excellent. <laughs> had been looking at the items, used the hot water, the same item, key out mm -hmm. item was. We told him, if you get in the water and you get out, that's a dive. You went through they the count. hassle of putting your gear on. You went through the evolution of getting your stuff ready. You got in. 
You got cold. You got out. It's a full dive because you still had the experience. And you, you accomplished your goal. Yes. And you didn't put yourself in danger. And, and in most cases, it's not as bad as you think it could be. I've done ice dives in a, in a wetsuit. And once I get in the water, I'm usually fine. You know, it's like that, it's, it's that, that initial, ooh, it's kind of cold, but it really isn't that bad. You're not going to get in a 50 minute dive in a wetsuit, but I've gotten some 20 plus minute dives in a wetsuit. Just, just remember to get out, get out while you still have some muscle strength. Yeah. Get out before you get cold. And if it gets yeah. really cold, it just stops hurting. <laughs> yeah. But and that's start, bad. It, it, and that's where we we talk about in the earlier thing is is watching the other divers. If you know, look for the signs of hypothermia if they start slurring their speech and uh, and not having uh, muscle control, then uh, you know you need, you need to signal to get them out. It, and it should never be there to begin. With. Yeah. If if you're already cold, by the time you get out, yeah. you're going to be colder. Yeah. Well, so and then we get out before you get cold. That's the real key yeah. item. Yeah, we'll we'll have to do we'll do uh if we get some nice ice diving conditions, we'll have to do another episode on how to stay warm. Um and if you look through our backlog of podcasts and also on the website, you'll see some tips. So we've got a a lot of tips how you can uh stay warm. And one of the one of my favorite tips is start warm. You know, if you yep. start cold, it's you're not gonna get any warmer underneath the water. So if you're if you're cold uh, it's already a losing battle at that point. Yep. Well, you guys got anything you want to plug? Uh, Mac, you have anything you you want to plug before we get out of here? Uh, let's see. They're putting on a presentation up at the Maritime Museum in South Haven on the 16th on the Truscott building or boating industry that was in Benton Harbor. That's going to be really, really interesting. Don't forget, you got Our World Underwater coming up pretty soon. Yes, that is not too many weeks away. And uh, right after that, you're going to have the Shipwreck Festival in Ann Arbor. And we're still hoping to see uh, the ghost ships to see if they're going to have theirs again this year or not. It's still yes. up in the air. Yep. And this year, the Great Lakes Shipwreck Festival is host is having Becky Kagan's shot as their big presentation. Mm-hmm. be interesting to see her imagery and talks about everything that she has done in the Great Lakes. Yeah. Uh, my, my plug is uh, if, you're, if you're not getting out there and doing diving, which you should be, uh, get your gear into your dive shop. Now's the perfect time to get it serviced so that when the weather starts getting warmer, you're all ready to go. And then we should have a Great Lakes wrecking crew dive meet coming up it won't be too long so you need to put it on your calendar when when does that normally happen is that in uh, april it's more it's more in the spring yep yep so yeah i've seen the date but i don't recall mm-hmm. but i think it is april yep so uh, get your stuff ready start thinking about it and it, it, it will be here soon uh dave you have anything you want to plug well you know i i guess uh you know kevin in around so Make sure you support your libraries and your librarians. There's a lot of history, and uh, I'm currently working with one on some things on something in Lake Erie. And without their help, I wouldn't be able to get what I what I need. So don't forget them. 
Certainly. Well, are you guys ready for that time of the show? I am sitting down. I am ready. Oh, God. Let me get a seatbelt. Okay. So here we go. Two scuba diving sociologists are sitting by the pool. One turns to the other and asks, Have you read Marx? To which the other replies, Yes, it's these damn wicker chairs. <laughs> Ouch. It lives up to the expectations. <laughs> Did that come from down under? No, that one didn't. Uh, I do have some that uh, were aging uh, from Rod, but no, this one uh, come from a different source, and I've got about uh, 10 of these all lined up. So <laughs> be prepared for more of them. I think the term is groaners. <laughs> so until next time, go out there and get wet. And stay safe. I found the article. I just want to bring this up. I know we're off on a rant because it's supposed to be scuba diving. But anyway, <laughs> do you realize, can you define to me what masculinity is? Oh, gosh. I think I, I saw the article that you're talking about. Yeah, I, uh, I'm reading this and I'm thinking, excuse me. Well, I, it depends on the agenda. Uh, I mean, some would call masculinity anything that's not feminism. If feminism says something's good, then that becomes feminist, and then everything else would be masculine or bad. Okay. This is bad because traditional masculinity is officially labeled harmful by the American Psychological Association. It has issued its first official warning against toxic masculinity. Oh. It's, I'm reading this, and it's like, excuse me, but. And if you look at it, if you go back 100 years, if you couldn't survive in the environment, you died, correct? Right. You had to be yes. aggressive. Yes. You had, you know, you had to look after yourself. You had to be capable of looking after yourself. And those attributes that you demonstrated, if a female wanted to survive, she also had to be, get out there and do it, right? Yes. So- the attributes that required you to survive back in those days, male or female, were necessary. So I have a tr I'm, I have trouble now saying, well, since you don't need those attributes, masculinity can be harmful. Well, how how are they saying it's harmful? I mean, it's one thing just to go and say those are harmful. Are they saying that that's what? Are they trying to equate like inner city violence to uh, masculinity? The new, the new city. All right. The the new guideline for the uh, psychological practice with men and boys marks the first ever report published by the association aimed at helping practitioners care for their male patients despite social forces that can harm mental health. Citing 40 years of research, they warn against the masculinity ideology, which defines 
a particular constellation of standards that have held sway over large segments of the population, including anti-femininity, achievement, a scroll of the appearance of weakness, meaning you can't show signs of weakness, uh, and the adventure risk and violence. Traditional masculinity ideology has shown to limit males' psychological development, constrain their behavior, result in gender role strain and gender role conflicts, and negatively influence mental health and physical health. According to the norms of masculine ideology, male can suppress, uh, can result in suppression of emotions and masking distress in young boys, as well as more risk-taking and aggressive behavior and a lack of willingness to seek out help. I hmm. just don't understand what the heck they're trying to say. Well, is it, are they, I mean, do they have some sort of scoring system that we're going to be able to keep track of? You know, like you... Here you you know here's a checkbox of all the traits and if you have so many scores and then is there a way I could you know if I've got one trait that's over masculine then is there a way to offset that so so for example I get a man bun can that negate you know well I'll traits? just read there's only another paragraph or two it says uh-huh. the uh, APA also invoked invoked a series of sobering statistics to emphasize that traditional masculinity marked by being uh, very stoke, I can't even pronounce it, socialism, duh, scratch that one, competitiveness, dominance, aggression, is on the whole harmful. For example, despite being four times more likely to die of suicide than women, men are significantly less likely to be diagnosed with internalizing disorders because they don't conform to traditional stereotypes about men's emotionality. Men in the United States also commit an estimated 90% more homicides than women and are also much more likely to be arrested for domestic violence. Despite its warnings, the APA also encouraged men to embrace the positive aspects of traditional masculinity like leadership and courage. Though men benefit from patriarchy, they're also impinged upon by patriarchy. So it's it's quite interesting. They want you to be the man, but not. What this is, is this just a way of attaching fancy labels onto it? I, I think it's all a bullshit study. I don't think that the, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it just, it, it reads of hypocrisy. I mean, you, you could have done the same thing and not even thrown masculinity in there. Positive traits, negative traits. Well, then it's like, well, what are the positive traits? What are the negative traits? You know, is it, you know, so homicide's bad, but is preventing death protection good? Wouldn't a protection trait be a masculine trait? Not saying that women, I mean, women are, can be protective as well, but, you know, it's stereotyping. Yeah. I, I know, this way off the subject, we were starting with diving, but it's still an interesting yeah. fact. Yeah, what what I'll do is I'll 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 cut the section out. We'll put it at the end and let everybody know they can they can listen to it. But uh, <laughs> or we can just cut that part out. Sorry about that. No, that's right. Uh, we'll, we'll we'll put it in. It'll it'll get uh, get there. 